I'm excited about today. I'm excited about today. We're now transitioning to Holy Week. Christ dying on the cross for our sins, Christ being resurrected. So I'm excited about that. I'm going to ask my, my wife to come forward. She's going to read scripture uh, for us from Mark chapter 11. Okay, this is Mark 11, 1 through 25. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door. They untied it and some of those who were standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who follow shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna! in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, when, he, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priest and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoings. The word of the Lord. Well, it, it's Holy Week. We begin the season now for the next week where we follow Jesus as he heads into Jerusalem, uh, where he heads into trial, where he heads to the cross and to the tomb, and then he's resurrected. Now, we know the story, right? We know what's going to happen. We know what's written in each of the Gospels. We know what Paul writes in all of his epistles, and yet we rehearse it. Again, each year we go through this time and we reenact the story. We enter back into each scene uh, to let it renew our faith. Uh, 
and remind us of what Jesus did on our behalf. To see him again, but not just to see him again, not just to celebrate a holiday, but in order to be grasped by him, in order to see what the king has done for us and let it renew us and transform us again. I read a story about some young men who went into an Anglican church in England and they went into the confession booth and the priest was there and they started joking around making fun of uh, the process of confession and basically making up all these bad things that they had done and the priest was on the other side of the confessional you know being mocked by these young men and the first man made up all these things that he had done and then ran out of the church and the second young man entered into the confessional and made up all these things and then ran outside of the church and then the third little boy ran uh, came into the confessional and and, and the priest said, stop for a moment. There's a picture of Jesus on the cross at the back of the church. And before you come and make fun of me, I just want you to go and behold that picture for a moment. Just go look at it. And I want you to look at it, and I want you to say, Jesus, you did all this for me, and I don't care that much. And the little boy went to the back and looked at the picture, and he said it. Jesus, you did all this for me, and I don't care that much. Jesus, you did all this for me, and I don't care that much. And by the time he tried to say it, the third time he couldn't do it. Because he had been grasped by what Jesus had done for him. As he had rehearsed the cross, as he had rehearsed what Jesus had done, it moved him, and he saw the king. And he was no longer able to mock the priest because the reality of what Jesus had done had grasped onto him. My hope for us this week and my hope for us today is that we would be grasped again by what Jesus has done for us. That we would see the king. That we would behold him. That he would transform us as we rehearse his triumphal entry. As we rehearse his move to the cross and to the tomb and his freedom from the grave. Jesus approaches Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And at this time, there were thousands of pilgrims that would go to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, the holy city. This was the time where they celebrated God, freeing them from the bondage and oppression of Egypt. And as Jesus would have walked towards Jerusalem and, and come up on the Mount of Olives and, and looked down across the Kidron Valley, he would have seen the, the, the steep incline to the holy city. And at the, the peak of the holy city, he would have seen the, t seen the temple, the place where God lives. You can imagine the sights and sounds of thousands of people traveling together towards the city. And, and as he comes up on the cities of Bethpage, and Bethany, he, he tells his disciples to go into one of those villages and get him a colt. Go find a colt, one that has not been ridden on, and get it for me. Tell them the Lord needs it. The disciples do that, and, and Jesus gets on the colt, and he rides through the Kidron Valley. And some people must have rushed ahead. Some people must have come out of the city. And some people must have been walking with him celebrating this entrance of the king into Jerusalem. They put their cloaks on the ground, which, which gives Jesus honor that his colt would walk over. They, they pulled leafy branches out to show that he's royalty. And they yell, Hosanna, which means save us. 
and they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, which is something we said at the very beginning of the service. And all these people, these people that are surrounding Jesus and going with him to Jerusalem and coming out of Jerusalem to meet him, they're recognizing him as king. They're looking to him and placing their hope in him, and they're asking him, save us, save us. But more significant than that is that Jesus is announcing himself as king. By Jesus getting on this colt and riding into the city and, and receiving all these praises from the surrounding people, Jesus is announcing himself as the king who has come to save. He's fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9. That says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's important that Jesus is a fulfilling prophecy because once he enters that city and once Thursday night comes when he's arrested and he's led around, It seems like Jesus is not driving the story. Rather, he's being driven through the story. But make no mistake, Jesus is the king. And he is driving this story. He's intentionally heading on purpose to Jerusalem, knowing that he is going to give up his life, that he is going to die on the cross. And so therefore, as he enters in on this donkey, he is fulfilling prophecy. He is announcing that he is the rightful king. Do you see the king? Will you be grasped by him again this Easter season? Will you cry out to him, Hosanna, save us, save me. And will you let him make a royal entrance into your life? Will you let him rule over you? Will you give him his rightful place as the king? Because this is no ordinary king. Jesus is not any type of king. He's first of all a servant king. He's a servant king. You see, whenever a king enters into a city that he wants to rule or dominate, they enter in with something called shock and awe. In some of the wars that the U.S. have been in on, their strategy has been shock and awe. Let's start this thing off with the bang, and it scares everybody, and it lets them know we're in charge. And if Jesus were to enter in with shock and awe, he would enter in on a white stallion with ar- surrounded by armies wielding a sword. But lowly Jesus doesn't enter in with shock and awe. Lowly Jesus enters in with gentleness. On a colt he doesn't even own. With no army, just humility. Just humility. Now make no mistake, his servanthood is not a lack of power. We've seen throughout the book of Mark that he has power over the demonic. He has power over disease. He has power over weather. He has power over all things. He is the king. But he's a servant king. He's a servant king, and he enters in humbly. And this is simply because his agenda is not to look extraordinary, but to serve. The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to offer his life as a ransom for many. He has not come in order to look extraordinary, but to lay down his life. Now, I find this fascinating the more I thought about this, because you and I are pretty committed to looking extraordinary, if we're honest. I was reading an article on the website Bored Panda, and the, the 
article title was The Truth Behind Instagram Photos. And a summary of the article went like this. Careful cropping and filtering can make mundane situations seem extraordinary. You all know it because you're guilty. <laughs> the article did this. It showed how easily it is to make a normal, mundane situation look extraordinary. And so what they did is they showed a, like a picture of this beautiful plate of food with this magazine right next to it that made whoever was eating it look kind of intellectual. And that was in the Instagram frame. But then they showed what was beyond the Instagram frame. And there was like dirty dishes on the side of the table. There was literally a cat on the table. It was disgusting. <laughs> Mundane, but trying to look extraordinary. There was another picture of a bedroom. And on this beautiful white bed, there was a laptop that looked like someone had been, you know, using their laptop. And then there was like two pine cones. Random, but it looked kind of cool. And that was inside the Instagram photo. But then it showed what was outside the photo. And the bed was a complete mess. The room was gross. It wasn't extraordinary at all. It was mundane. There was a picture of a girl who was doing this yoga pose. A yoga headstand, literally on her elbows. And like the sunset's perfect in the background. And in the frame, it kind of chops her legs off right here. So it looks like she's doing this by herself. But it zooms outside of the frame and it shows her friend <laughs> leaned over like this, helping her look extraordinary. See, there's something in you and I that we, we fight. We don't even want to look normal. We want to look extraordinary. We can't have a picture of ourselves out there that looks normal. If that happens, we will stop, we will crop, we will filter, we will frame, and we will hashtag until you and I look extraordinary. Oh, how different Jesus is. How different Jesus is. Because the crowd celebrates him and yet misses how extraordinary he really is. They put a filter on him that says he's here to meet our political expectations. Jesus has come to conquer Rome for us and set us free. But Jesus hasn't come to conquer Rome, but sin, Satan, and death. They crop him down and lessen who he is to the level of a human king when he's a divine king. The hashtag would say conquer our enemies, but he's going to the cross to die for his enemies. They frame him within this idea of restoring their country to the world stage. But Jesus has come to restore humanity to God through his death on the cross. See, they filter him and they crop him in a way that diminishes who he is and makes him look less extraordinary than he actually is. They recognize that Christ had come to save, but they didn't understand what he was saving them from. They put a filter over him that shrunk his identity he was extraordinary, but they made him look almost normal. They lessened who he was. And I find that so interesting in light of the fact that you and I are just normal people, but we will do anything to look extraordinary. Jesus is extraordinary, and he's framed as just a mere human king. But he doesn't stop. He doesn't reframe. He doesn't rebuke the crowds and tell them to hashtag him differently, if you know what I mean. He doesn't recrop what they're saying. The lesson here is not to worry about your Instagram photos, although that would be good. It would probably be healthy. The lesson is to look to Jesus, the servant king. Look to Jesus, the servant king. 
You see, he's lessened, and yet he still goes onward to the cross. Despite being incorrectly cropped and falsely framed, the king heads to the cross for the sake of the crowd, even though the crowd doesn't understand that he is headed to the cross. It's because Jesus has not come for show, but for service. He's come to lay down his life, not to look extraordinary. He's come to die. Because he's a king, but he's a servant king. Do you see the servant king? Gentle, lowly, riding on a colt. Humble. Could you be like the crowds maybe though? Could you be at risk for celebrating him and yet missing all of what he's come to do? Could you miss the fact that he's come to bring salvation not out of your worst problems, but from your sin in order to restore you to God? He has come to serve you by dying on the cross in your place. Behold the servant king. But make no mistake, he is a king. Though he is lowly and humble, he is high and lifted up. Though he is misunderstood, he is still mighty. And though he enters in simply, he is supreme. He is a sovereign king in charge of all things. Do you see the sovereign king? Do you see the supreme king? Jesus enters into the city and the first place he goes is the temple. And that's significant. And he goes into the temple and he looks around. And Mark intentionally tells us that he goes into the temple and looks around. And then he leaves the city. The next day he goes back to the temple. And the angriest we see Jesus in the Gospels is this situation. Where he goes into the temple and he throws out those who were buying and selling things. He overturns the table of money changers. And he flips over the chairs of those who were selling doves. And he doesn't permit anyone to carry any goods through the temple. Why? Why? Since the beginning of time, God has always desired to dwell with humanity. The Garden of Eden was God's place to be with people, to be in their presence, to be in relationship. And he was the source of life. He longed to dwell among them and be with them. When Adam and Eve sinned, our relationship with God was broken, and Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. They were now unrighteous, sinful, and they could no longer be around a God who was righteous and pure. And so God banished them from the garden. Sin separated and broke our relationship with God, and now we don't look to him anymore as the source of life because our relationship has been broken with him. He is now the judge. Instead of living forever with him in the garden, instead of being present with him in paradise, we are separated from him. We don't, we don't see him. That's why people wonder, where is God? What is he like? That's why at the end of our life we die, because there's a curse over all of humanity. And the risk for us is if we die without being restored to God, we spend eternity away from him, separated from him forever. God still wants to dwell among humanity. He existed there in the temple where the people of Israel could come and worship, but they still had the sin problem. They still couldn't be in his presence in the temple unless there was sacrifice to atone for their sin, unless their sins were forgiven. 
And so the sacrificial system was implemented in the temple where people would come and they would bring animals and, and as the animal was, was killed, their sins were symbolically atoned for. And the idea was you cannot be restored to God unless something dies in your place. But the temple was meant to be a place of life, a place where people could come and say, our God has chosen to live among us. Through sacrifice, we are restored to him and we are allowed to be in his presence because our God wants to be with his people. And that wasn't just for Israel. Israel was to be a light for the nations where the nations could come near and be close to Israel's God. In Isaiah 56, Isaiah prophesies and talks about, um, and talks about the temple and he says, as for the foreigners or those people who aren't from Israel, those who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain. Anytime you see the word holy mountain in the Old Testament, it means the temple mount. It's where the temple existed in Jerusalem. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, right? Those who were far from God were still welcome to God as long as they submitted to him, as long as they accepted the, the system of sacrifice that they needed to be near to God. That is the vision of the temple, but it had drastically malfunctioned. Not that God had done something wrong, but the leaders of the temple and the nation of Israel had made the temple malfunction so it was no longer doing what it was supposed to be doing. Instead of being a place of sacrifice and forgiveness, it had become a place of corruption. Instead of being a place where the nations were welcome, it was a place where the nations almost were excluded. You see, there, there was corrupt selling practices that happened in the temple. People would, would go in to buy their sacrifices, and they would be in the outermost court of the temple, the place where the Gentiles were welcome. It, and instead of that being a place of prayer for the nations to come, it had become a place where there you would hear animals being bought and sold, where you would hear the clanking of change. And how are the nations supposed to draw near to pray when you hear sheep buying in the background, when you hear change being exchanged over tables? Rather than a place for all nations to come, it had become a place of noise for the nations. The temple had malfunctioned, not because of God, but because of the way people had treated it. It had become a place of commerce, a place of corruption. It had become a, a symbol of national arrogance rather than international access to God. And so when Jesus goes and flips over the tables and the chairs and shuts down the temple during Passover week, shuts down the temple, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it a den of thieves. It was meant to bring those far away into the spiritual life of Israel, and from afar, it was beautiful. It looks significant and majestic, but when Jesus got near, he judges it because it really has no spiritual life in it. That's what the whole fig tree thing's about. It's not that Jesus hates fig newtons. It's that he looks at this fig tree, and it's leafy. 
it looks like it has, it should be fruitful. But then he gets up close and there's leaves, but no fruit, just like the temple. It looks spiritual, but when you get up close, you see it's not spiritual. It's corrupt. It's a place of commerce. It's a place of exclusion rather than inclusion. And so Jesus judges the fig tree as an acted parable of what he's about to do in the temple, that he's about to judge the temple. I'm bringing this back around. Who's the only person that can judge the temple? The only person that can judge the temple is the ruler of the temple. It's the, pl- it's the place where God lives, and so only the person who lives there can judge it. And by judging the temple, Jesus is saying he is the supreme king. God's presence had left the temple, but there had been a prophecy about when God would return. And it said, see, I am going to send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will, come, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming. When Jesus judges the temple, this prophecy is fulfilled. The supreme king of the temple comes to judge the temple. Because he has the right to. He is the king. He can bring judgment on the place where God is present because he is the presence of God. He is the king. He is supreme. You know, a lot of times people will say that Jesus never says he's God in the, in the Gospels. That's a misunderstanding because Jesus is constantly doing things that only God would do. And I think the response for us is to recognize that Jesus might be a servant king. He might be lowly and gentle and humble, but he is still supreme. He is still the king in charge. He has the right to walk into the place that has hundreds of years of history of the presence of God and shut it down because he is God. He is God. And I think part of grasping on the Jesus again for us this Easter season is to resubmit ourselves to him as king, to reaffirm our loyalty to him, to trust him afresh and say, you are the ruler of my life. I, I got a little frustrated the other day. I was looking at um, just some social media stuff. All my illustrations are social media today for some reason. But I was looking at... Um, this church had had people come forward and accept Christ. And the caption said, these people have made Jesus Lord. And I understood what they were trying to say. But I was like, you can't make Jesus Lord. He already is Lord. And our job is to recognize that and submit under the supreme king. Now, I don't mean to nitpick. We're Christians here. We've got to join together. But, but Jesus is Lord over all. He is supreme. Do you see the supreme king? You know, if you're exploring Christianity over this Easter season, if, if you would say, you know, I'm not a Christian, but I'm trying to figure out what that means and what it means for me, and you've come to this place where you're like, I, I like Jesus. I have respect for Jesus. He was a great teacher. He showed the world how to love. I want to nudge you you need to make more of a decision. 
Jesus doesn't want to just be liked. Jesus wants you to see that he is Lord. He is the supreme king over all. I've had the opportunity in my life to visit a lot of religious sites around the world. About 10 years ago, I was able to go to Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. It's now, it used to be a, um, a Christian church, but it's now a mosque. Uh, when I lived in London, I was able to visit several times and sit on, on their worship of uh, Sikh Gudwar, the Sri Guru Singh Saba in London. And here's a picture of the inside of that building. And about five years ago, I was able, while I was in Kathmandu, to go to the Buddha Hanaf Stupa and watch from above as people walked around this religious site and spun prayer wheels. And during those times, I've always entered in and I've just listened. I've talked with people, I've asked questions, and I've just sat there and reflected. And I've come to the point where I believe that Christianity is fundamentally different than any other world religion. And here's why. All the leaders of these religions, Muhammad, Guru, Nanak, Buddha, they showed us a way to God. Christianity says that Jesus is God. He doesn't show us how to get into the presence of God. He is the presence of God. He is the supreme king. And therefore, if you're exploring Christianity this Easter season, it's not enough for you just to say, I like Jesus. He's a good teacher. He showed us how to love. Because Jesus himself says he is Lord. And I want to push you. You need to either come to a place where you're willing to come under him as king, or you have to say he's crazy. You have to say he's a lunatic. Because Jesus, in his actions, is claiming that he is the supreme king. Not one God among many other gods, but the true God. The one who can walk into the temple and shut it down. Because he is the presence of God. Do you see the supreme king? Do you see the servant king? Do you see the gift of the king? Jesus leaves the temple area and he heads out of the city. And the next morning, him and his disciples were passing by and they see the fig tree withered from the roots up. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you ask, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you for your wrongdoing. This last story is a tough passage because it's hard to figure out how it relates to everything else that's going on. And at first glance, it seems like spiritual advice from Jesus on faith and forgiveness. But I think there's much, something much more meaningful going on here. Jesus is talking about throwing a mountain into the sea, and I don't think he's talking about any mountain. I think he's talking about the temple, the temple mount the highest place in Jerusalem where God's presence is supposed to be. I think he's talking about that mountain going into the sea, which is a sign of judgment, which makes sense with the rest of the story. The one who commands the temple and has shut down the sacrificial system during Passover week is saying, we no longer need the temple because I'm the better temple. I'm the final sacrifice. 
An access point to God is no longer needed because I am the presence of God that will die for you on the cross and offer myself for you. Jesus is put on the cross. He bears the wrath of God. He dies. He's put in the tomb. Three days later, he has risen from the dead. And he becomes the access point to God. He doesn't show us the way. He is the way. He doesn't show us how to make better sacrifices. He is the sacrifice. He doesn't show us how to work towards the presence of God. He is the presence of God himself. Jesus gives himself up as a sacrifice, a gift for you. To bring the life of God into you. He died the death you deserve to die in order to restore you to life with God. And I think that's generally what he's getting at when he talks about the faith and forgiveness. The crux of spirituality is no longer sacrifice on the Temple Mount. It's faith in God and forgiving your neighbor. His death is a gift to you. So I'll ask you this. Do you see the servant king? Do you see the supreme king? But most of all, do you see the gift of the king? Easter is not just a holiday. It is a celebration of Jesus' gift to us. That he has laid down his life on our behalf. We're not reenacting a myth. We're reenacting a true story of the one who has sacrificed himself to restore us to God. And my hope for you, if, if you've never embraced faith in Jesus, if you've never turned to Christ, if you never repented of your sins and, and believed in him, is that this Easter season you would. That this Easter season you would see the great gift of the servant king. That you would see that the supreme king offers you himself and that you would find new faith in him. If you've been a believer a long time, my hope is that you would find fresh faith in the king. Do you see the king? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for giving us yourself. And we pray that we would see more of you. I pray for those who are wrestling right now, Lord, and, and uh, that you would meet them in their wrestle. I pray for those who are encouraged, that you would lock that encouragement into their heart. And Lord, I pray that we would behold you. We would, we would be more loyal to you. We would follow you, not to earn anything from you, but because you've fully given yourself to us. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me now as we sing?